0: Good morning. My name is Jeff Leo, and I'm pastor to college students and young adults here at Lake Avenue Church. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. Would you join me, if you're able, by standing for the reading of God's Word? To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star, whoever has ears. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last night we were talking about the weather and how yesterday the high was 88 degrees, and Matt Barnes said, Welcome to the fall in Southern California. And uh, every time this year, my wife begins to miss uh, fresh apple cider and spiced donuts from the cider mills in Michigan. I miss it with her. She introduced that to me. I can't tell that it's fall here, not at least by the weather. But I always know that it's fall when I get phone calls and when I talk to students about how strange their roommates are. (laughs) That's how this college pastor knows that it's fall because it's still early on and students are still getting to know their roommates. One of them is really good at doing the dishes. One of them is really good at letting others do the dishes. (laughs) Friendships are formed. Friendships fall apart, and I'm not sure that I was that good of a roommate when I was in college. And the only way that I knew that is because one day, one of the four of us roommates screamed at me, and it made me wonder what have I done wrong? Now, some backstory my first well paying job out of high school was to build computers. School districts would send in their orders, and I was in charge of assembling hundreds of computers. And I got really good at it. I began to love this job. I began to love computers so much so that I asked my boss before I left that place, could I assemble my own computer as I head off to college? I chose the components I customized that machine. I made it exactly the way that I wanted it to. This, this computer would do everything for me. It would play my music. I could listen to the radio. I would be able to watch TV on this computer. So many things. So much so that I, I decided I don't need to bring an alarm clock with me because my computer can do that. And I wasn't going to choose just any alarm on my computer software. I was going to make it my own. Now, In Oklahoma, where I grew up, my brother and sister and I used to watch this cartoon, which I'm sure none of you have heard of, it's called Space Ghost, Coast to Coast, and there are some really annoying characters in this show, and I thought, you know, it's already hard enough for me to wake up, my daughter's just like me, she doesn't wake up in the morning for school, we have to put her shirt on while she's still sleeping in order to get her out of bed, I am like that, I'm going to need an especially annoying alarm. And so I chose a voice from this cartoon that was the most annoying voice, but I thought it was hilarious, and my brother and sister did too. Well, in Michigan, when it's 10 degrees above zero, it's really hard to get out of bed. You want to stay in because there it's warm. And that's especially true on a Sunday morning because my roommates didn't go to church, but I did. So here we are, Sunday morning, and the alarm goes off. It's cold, and my one roommate, I want to think that he was half asleep, and perhaps he doesn't remember saying this to me. He screams at me, Jeff, it's not funny anymore. (laughs) I didn't play that alarm anymore. We lost touch. We didn't lose touch, like, uh, we didn't lose touch t- 10 years after graduation. We didn't lose touch one year after graduation. We lost touch after freshman year. <laughs> I, it's really sad, but I, I think, you know, for whatever reason, whether it was me or the rest of us, he couldn't tolerate us. He couldn't tolerate us. Now, I think that a lot of what we learn about from kindergarten all the way through adulthood is the best way to get along with others or the best way to tolerate other people. In fact, one of the most favorite training curriculum that that I get to deploy, that I get to use, is uh, missionary training. It's cross-cultural missionary training that we call Ministering Across Cultures, which is all about helping Christian college students figure out what do you do when you say hello to someone who is culturally different from you? What do you do after you say hello? And one of the mantras that we teach students to repeat to themselves to have an internal dialogue when they encounter someone from another culture, we tell them, say this to yourself over and over, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just different. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just different. And I think this covers a multitude of sins when you are tempted to say, I don't like that, or this is strange to me. If you tell yourself it's not good, it's not bad, it's just different, that will help you tolerate someone who's really different from you. But more usually what we say is, okay, fine, it's not good, it's not bad, but I don't like it. (laughs) So what do we do when we can no longer tolerate something? And occasionally, it will be a really serious difference, not just a small difference, but something that strikes at the center of who we are, and especially at the center of who we are as Christians. My mentor over at Fuller Seminary asks this question about kindness and tolerance in his book, subtitled Christian Civility in an Uncivil World. He writes about kindness and gentleness and respect. What does that mean? What do those words mean, though, in real situations of conflict? Not easy ones, not surface-level ones. What about real situations of conflict? He gives some examples. What about dealing with Nazis and Satanists and the heretics in our churches? What does it mean to treat such persons with gentleness and reverence? So he set up the question, and I believe today's letter addresses that very issue. And he'll provide an answer a little bit below as I read it to you. But there's so much that this text has to provide us. Last week, Pastor Greg brought to us a word about the false teaching that was going on in Pergamum from the mouths of Balaam and Balak. This week, there is false teaching and idolatrous practice in the church At Thyatira, and Jesus' letter addresses that situation. And in this letter, he tells us very clearly that Christians, you and I, must listen for the clear voice of Jesus in order to resist the idolatry that would otherwise seduce us. Christians must listen for the clear voice of Jesus himself in order to resist the idolatry that would otherwise seduce us. In order to know where we're going this morning, I think we have to take a look at where we've been. So I have a chart prepared for you that should be shown on the screen. And hopefully the words aren't too small. I've done some highlighting. As you look at the letters that we've been through, we've been through four and we have three left to go through. There are patterns here. Jesus is taking a look at these churches going in a rainbow pattern around Asia, and he's saying specific things to them, but he's pointing out themes. And it's important to get to know these themes because you'll see what Jesus is looking for. What is Jesus looking for in the church? Now, you may recall in Ephesus, they had sound doctrine, and that's why I've highlighted it in green. Jesus gives them a thumbs up, sound doctrine is great, but he says to them, I need you to repent because you've abandoned the works that you began at first. Good doctrine, but you need to get back to work. And then you get to the church at Smyrna where you may recall that there was persecution going on. And Jesus says, I require nothing of you. Well, he doesn't say that, but he doesn't ask them to do anything because he knows they're suffering. He says that this is true also at Pergamum where Antipas was killed. But he he does say that there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who worked with Balak to try to entice Israel to worship a different god. And he did so by means of food sacrificed to idols and practices of sexual immorality. This is where we've come, and so we land in Thyatira, which seems almost to be the opposite of Ephesus. The works are great. Not only do they have love and faith, but they also have ministry and service. But not just that. These things are increasing and increasing. Jesus says, I see what you're doing. These works are the right works, but nevertheless, I have something against you. And he introduces the problem to us. The problem is this you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, we're not talking about a literal woman, I don't think, in this passage, because what John does is he reaches back to the Old Testament to tell us about a woman Jezebel. She was a queen, taken by a king to be his wife. But she was not a worshiper of Yahweh, She was a worshiper of a different God. And she persecuted the prophets. She killed many of them. She hired some of her own against whom Elijah himself would do battle at Mount Carmel. And when he defeated them, she swore she would eradicate Elijah. This was Jezebel enticing the people of God to worship someone else. And this was the problem. Now, remember what Jesus has said at Pergamum and now at Thyatira. Two problems, he points out. Food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And you may recall from our previous series in the book of Acts that this is exactly what the council at Jerusalem was writing to as the gospel was spreading to syria and antioch just a little bit north from jerusalem as the missionaries were headed out they encountered something that they could never have believed in their wildest dreams the gospel was going to the gentiles but there were problems there were some practices there which clearly indicated that these people worshiped a different god so Missionaries come back. They talk with the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and they realize we need to give some instruction about how we are to live together as a family and we just prescribe these three abstentions. Brothers in Antioch and Syria abstain from these three things. Food that was sacrificed to idols, blood, and sexual immorality. Because these practices, these particular practices, pointed out to the world that you engage in the worship of a different God other than the God of Jesus Christ. This was, the, this was the problem. So the gospel spreads to Antioch and Syria and then it goes further north and to the west to the churches that are addressed by Jesus and it seems... That he says to them the same things: abstain, flee from food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality, because what it says, church, is that you engage in the worship of a different God. And the Bible's word for that is idolatry. Now, it bears addressing why does Jesus choose this issue of sexual immorality and adultery as an example? Well. Just like your marriages are a covenant, an agreement, a contracting together that you promise one another till you die that you will be together. So the people of God covenanted themselves to God, promised themselves to Him just as Jesus was baptized and tied Himself to us, so we were to be tied with Him. And these practices were the breaking of a sacred covenant. This was the destruction of the people's relationship with God. And so, we must ask ourselves, what about our idolatry? What about our idolatry? I think even in order for us to ask ourselves this question, we have to come to grips with how do we even find out that we're idolaters? How do we even know? As we were preparing the sermon on Tuesday, our group that was working together was overwhelmed with the sense that as we talk about this issue of idolatry, one of the responses that all of us is inclined to have is to say to ourselves, We're fine. We're fine. We're fine. Everything is fine. How will we know that we're idolizing something when everything around us, when everyone around us tells us that we're doing fine? How do we know? One of the practices that I engage in when I preach anywhere, but especially here at Lake Avenue, is to ask a couple of preaching coaches to come alongside me. Uh, One of them was there last night listening in the room. Now these have to be people that I trust. Not, not that I trust to be my friends and to stroke my ego and to tell me that I'm fine, but to tell me the truth about how I did, whether I was faithful to the text. Because I know that left to my own, I love the sweet music of affirmation. It is intoxicating to me. It smells good. Affirmation. Tell me how wonderful I am. So a few days after I preach, when I'm ready to receive critical feedback, I ask them to tell me how I did. You see, just like Mark Laberton, who was here a few weeks ago and spoke to us about idolatry, my name is Jeff Leo, and I, too, am an idolater. I, too, have visions of grandeur. And if you have the illusion that idolatry only affects yourself, I have delusions of grandeur for my family do you want to know how i know brothers and sisters i caught myself on friday practicing vocabulary words with my four-year-old i asked him jesse what does this word mean i don't know jesse what does that word mean i don't know And it must be because November 2nd is coming. Do you know what November 2nd is? I can smell that in the air too. It is the next SAT. (laughs) High school students everywhere must be trembling in fear, but oh, it smells good to me. I have delusions of grandeur for my children. It's never too early, I say to myself, to train my kids to beat this exam so that they can have lots of scholarship money. They can go to the school of their choice and get the job that they want. And you know what? I have a lot of people who will tell me, you're fine. You're fine. You're just fine. They would back me up. It seems silly. It seems silly. And some of you might even ask, what's wrong with wanting the best for your children? A student asked me one time, Jeff, is there anything inherently wrong with being rich? And I was new as a campus minister. I hadn't thought through the answer before. I had philosophical and theological thoughts about it. Of course I did. And so I began to engage the question, well, it's not inherently wrong, this and that, and some qualifications. But now with uh, with hindsight and with experience, I wish I had never engaged the question. This question, isn't it it okay to want great things for your family? Brothers and sisters, I think the reason why I wish I hadn't engaged that question, I don't think it's the right question. I don't think it's the right question at all. Because I think this text asks us, whose voice are you listening to? Whose voice are you listening to? I know where the messages come from. They come from my culture. They come from my background. They come from being in the academy for a long time. I know where they come from. But is this the voice of Jesus? That's a harder one to answer. The harder question that we must all ask ourselves. Do we hear the clear voice of Jesus that would rescue us from the idolatry that would otherwise seduce us? Jesus says in this letter, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. I believe that when we can't identify idolatry in ourselves, it makes it much more difficult to identify wrongdoing and idolatry in others that we know, and even more difficult still, others that are close to us. We want to tell them. We've been trained to tell them. Everything we learn helps us to do exactly the opposite of what the Scriptures are asking us. We want to tell them. It's fine. You're fine. Everything is fine. Have you stood by and done nothing while you've watched a couple's relationship fall apart because of adultery and idolatry? Are you a leader of one of our Sunday morning classes? You know the burden is more difficult for you Have you watched your class engage in idolatry or individuals in your class? Have you watched neighbors, friends, loved ones do things which you know are wrong? Have you stood by? Perhaps... We must address the idolatry in our own lives. Perhaps we must take the log out of our own eye, not just so that we can examine the speck in others, but to have the power, to have the godliness, the connection with Jesus that it takes to identify, even identify, idolatry out there in the world. There is help for us. And the Word comes to us in verse 21 and 22. The biblical Word, God's help for us, Jesus' opportunity for us this morning is repentance. He says of Jezebel, I gave her a chance to repent, but she was unwilling. But all of you who hold to her teachings, there's a way out. It's repentance. And if you're wondering what that word means, it means to turn away. To turn away from those things which absorb us in ourselves and to turn outward to a God who loves us, who wants better for us. As I was preparing this message this morning, I was thinking, there must be someone here who needs to take this opportunity. You may have come here this morning wondering, how do I enter into life with God? How do I get out of myself and into fellowship with others? And the answer is here, it requires a turning away from yourself and from the idols in your lives, the things that would ensnare you, instead of setting you free. The Word is repentance to make a 180-degree turn and turn to the God of freedom Himself. And we will make that invitation to you this morning. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we ask at the end of our service for you to come up, I hope that you do come, be set free, turn from idolatry, And when we do, I think we'll be able to address idolatry in the rest of the world and in others. Again, my mentor over at Fuller, he answers the question this way. When we're dealing with someone who's clearly trapped by an idol, seduced and enticed, here's what the grace of God means. It means, for one thing, that we never forget that they, those idolaters, are indeed persons who are created in God's image and who are still within the reach of divine mercy. There is hope. It means we can think about cutting off conversation with them only, only when it becomes clear that they are, by their clear intent, to harm the lives of other persons asking us to do so. We never let go unless they ask us to do so. It means that we may never let go of the hope that they may yet flourish as creatures with the potential to glorify their Maker just as God has transformed each of you who belongs to Him so He can transform others. You've seen it. I've seen it. We know this is true. This is the power of God. You know this repentance. And it is our privilege to extend this opportunity to others so that they may be free from idolatry. What you extend, brothers and sisters, when we do what's called evangelism here at this church, you extend the opportunity to repent. One of my evangelist mentors told me without repentance there is no true turning to God. Repentance. Are you here this morning wondering how to find your life with God? The voice of Jesus himself in this text says repentance. And to the rest of you, Jesus says, now to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to Jezebel's teaching... Jesus offers us an amazing gift, an incentive, as if you will, in economic terms. He says, I have a promise for you. And he says, I will give you a rod of iron. Put that in your kid's stocking. A rod of iron? Well, thank you very much, Jesus. What do I do with that? But what Jesus is doing is He's taking us back to a psalm that would have shaped the imagination of every Jewish person. And that's Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2 were so formative for the life, especially the worship life of Israel. And Psalm 2 bears reading again. Let me read a portion of it to you. Verse 7 of Psalm 2. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. And this is what the Lord decrees. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The church for centuries has taken Psalm 2 to be pointing to Jesus, which is why John records here in the first verses of this letter to Thyatira, 18 and 19, that Jesus Himself, and nowhere else in the book, says of Himself, the Son of God. Because He is the Son, and today, God became His Father. This is the one who can give to us the rod of iron. Now, what would you do with the rod of iron to rule the nations? I know what I would do. Not pretty. When I was in high school, I was a debater. I engaged in forensics, as we called it, where we would argue with each other. And I loved doing this. And some of the skills that I learned really benefit me as I prepare messages and teaching, but one of the habits that I learned is really an ungodly one. I learned to crush my opponents. (laughs) And if you talk to me about those glory days, you'll still see a fondness and a sinful glint in my eye as I relive those moments when I would crush my opponents and glory over my victory because I too am an idolater. As I prepare sermons, sometimes I'm tempted because I'm an idolater, to create airtight arguments so that no one can assail me, no one could possibly argue with me. As I prepare teaching, I prepare to crush other ideas because that's what I learned to do because I am an idolater. And what I've realized since then, though I don't do it well, is that my job is not to argue with you. My job is to tell you the truth. But I am an idolater. And so I must repent. And when brothers and sisters come and tell me, hopefully they tell me three days after when I'm ready to receive criticism, when they tell me that I'm wrong, hopefully I can turn. Hopefully I can turn. Well, one of the things that's going on in this book, clearly it's set up as a conflict between two different kingdoms, Jezebel on the one hand and the people of God on the other. Now, there is another woman in the book of Revelation that you will get to know if you read the rest, which we won't get to in this series. This woman, the second woman, is clearly, every biblical scholar I'm sure would agree, this woman is clearly the Roman Empire. And when I study those passages in this passage, the language is shockingly similar. There's a rod of iron going on over there too. There are empires that are conflicting with each other. And there were collaborators in the church who would tolerate sin, who would tolerate the influence of the empire, who would even tolerate, according to the words of Jesus, Satan himself, they would tolerate him. Just as there were guilds in those ancient days where, if you recall, Lydia was a worker with purple cloth. She made purple cloth. She would have participated in a guild, a business society, if you will. But these were very robust business societies. They didn't just tell you what you were to sell, but they told you how you were to conduct yourself. They told you who you were to worship. And the Roman Empire was chief among all of these. You worship the Caesar. So there's a conflict between these political entities, as it were. And as I work with young skeptics who keep their distance from the church, whether they call themselves Christians or not, many of them say we keep our distance from the church because it's too political. It seems like the political powers of the world and the church are strange bedfellows. I agree with Southern Baptist Convention ethicist Russell Moore Who warns us about allowing our political um, involvement to become political assimilation? We cannot allow ourselves to be co-opted by one agenda or another, so the question becomes again, whose voice? Whose voice clearly speaks through us? Do we talk like them? Do we act like them? Or have we submitted to the voice of King Jesus? One of the things I really appreciate about the Crossroads community, which my wife and I are a part of, is that we're going through this series where it's highlighting that people disagree with me. People disagree with me. This is the shock of my life. (laughs) But we have to figure out not just how to sweep those under the rug so that we can, quote, fellowship together but how do we live with our differences in a way that it actually makes things better? Is that, is that even possible? Well, this is a great experiment in Crossroads where we, week after week, confront issues that are difficult for us to talk about with one another and then go out to lunch. It's been working great, and I've learned that my job is not to argue, but to speak the truth. I hope that's you as well, because the clarion voice of Jesus himself gives us the truth that we are to speak. And it is about repentance. And when we do, Jesus says, I will give you, not just a rod of iron, thank you very much, I will give you the morning star. I will give you the morning star. Now some of the images in the book of Revelation are difficult for us because we didn't live back then. But if you're an astronomer, you know what the morning star is. It's Venus, which shines so brightly in the night sky It is the planet Venus that the Romans knew. In fact, you can find on their coinage the phrase Venus Victrix, which means victorious Venus. She became a symbol of the victory of the Roman Empire over the nations as they expanded. And Jesus says, I will give you the morning star. I alone have the authority to give the victory. And to those of you who do my will, who resist idolatry by clinging clinging to my clear voice, you will win. You will have the victory. So let me ask you, is your vision for your life, is it the victory of King Jesus? Or do you want to crush your opponents? It's not so much the opponents anymore that I want to be crushed, but it's the Jesus that we know that I want to win. That Jesus. I think this is very difficult for us in our imaginations. Let me point out why. When I look at our public figures, even our Christian public figures, when I look at political scandals, when I see the gaffes that they make, or the moral failures that we see, and I know that this is true for me and probably for you too, when you're caught in idolatry, you know what we do. We deny We become defensive, we change the subject, we redirect, sometimes we even lie. But rarely, rarely comes forward a genuine and humble apology and repentance for wrongdoing, rarely. King David knew this well when the prophet Nathan came to him and told him a story that was really about David. Only when Nathan says, you are the one this story is about, did David finally submit knowing he was caught. I'll close with this. I'm watching a TV show right now that tells me how far the American imagination has gone. When when we think about our leaders, when we think about what it means to be a public figure, when we think about what it means for us to live in this country... This TV show is set in an apocalyptic situation where the hero of the show has to make just about every single difficult decision on behalf of everyone else. There are plenty of shows like these. You you might have seen 24. You, You can list off your own. But brothers and sisters, I sure hope we haven't come to expect to be led that way. And even more so, I hope that you don't lead that way that you expect a leader essentially to be flawless, to make perfect judgments all the time, and we know that that's never going to happen. So what these shows bring out is that each of these alpha-type leaders are tormented souls. They have only their own voice to run off of, to fuel them. They have not the clear voice of Jesus, which teaches grace and repentance. I sure hope you haven't come to expect to be led that way. Instead, I hope that you expect to be led by the God who hears your cries, who hears you when you say, I submit. I have nothing left. I give up. I hope you submit to the God who hears your requests for wisdom and direction. He will lead you. He promised to And I hope you have come to expect to be led by leaders who are on their knees. Pastor Myra prayed for those leaders who are away right now, our ministry council and some of our pastors who are on retreat, seeking God. You know, I I was talking to a senior leader once here, and he said to me, Jeff, I'll tell you what I know. I know about one or two things, and that's about it. That was so refreshing to me. It was so ref- Let me tell you why it was refreshing to me. It's because I know for everything else, he must now run to Jesus to hear his voice. I hope that's you. Lord, I hope that's me. I hope we don't shout like Israel, give us a king. Because we have a king. His name is Jesus. And his eyes blaze with fire. And his feet are like burnished bronze. He sits enthroned on high from whence he gives good gifts to his people. And from thence he will come again to judge the living and the dead with grace and power. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, idolaters every one of us, have mercy. Teach us repentance. But give us the materials that we need. Give us the opportunities we need. Give us the community that we need. Who will tell us that we need to repent? So many times you've brought someone else to your servants to teach them, to tell them, to prod them in the direction of repentance. Will you bring someone to my brothers and sisters this morning? Will you teach them of their need for repentance? Will you teach me of mine? God, will you surround me with people who will tell me the truth? Who won't entice me with the intoxicating smell of affirmation? But will speak gently, respectfully, with the aim of correcting me? Will you do that for us so that this church might cling to you? That we might turn away from every sin which would ensnare us so that we might run the race with freedom, unfettered. We might know the goodness of working for You, apart from our idolatry, set free, so that we could live as You've designed us to live. God, would that be true of us, that this church would be holy, a shining light to this city, salt and light to people who are in need. May it be true of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.